0: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome. You have tuned in to episode number 307 of Linux in the Shack. Who would have ever thought that we'd get to episode number 307? But here we are, and we have a great deep dive for you tonight. It will actually be in the open source world instead of the amateur radio world, which we've been focusing on a lot in our deep dives. But we'll get into that in a minute. First, we'll introduce the hosts, and the first one is me. I'm Russ, K5TUX. Cheryl will be here for the second part of the show. She's going to sit out the first part. She's W5MOO,
1: and we also have... Bill n 4rd
0: And sitting in, somebody we're going to grill on this topic tonight is a longtime friend of the show and one of our longtime supporters as well, John Spriggs. John, the nice guy, he's known all over the intertubes. And he's golf seven Victor Romeo India.
2: So welcome to the show, John. Good evening, everyone. And I say good evening. It's probably not wherever you are. So, you know,
0: well, it sorry. probably is actually. So <laughs>
2: yeah, that's a good. Point. Well made.
0: Uh, so it's good to have you on the show. We've been on the admin admin podcast before. You invited us to come over there for a little while. I didn't even remember what we talked about, but we talked about us probably. That's usually what happens. Um, but thanks for doing that, and we want to remind everybody that if you're into the Linux and open source stuff, especially when it comes to the world of sysadmining, you should definitely check out the Admin Admin podcast.
2: And give a quick plug as where they would find that. Sure. So that's Admin uh, Admin uh, and I think we're on we're on things like Twitter and Telegram and stuff like that. But you'll find all the details on the Admin Admin podcast website all right
0: fantastic but tonight we're going to talk about one of those sysadmini topics and that is ansible it's a project that we mentioned on the show before probably about a year ago i think we've determined and uh it's a it's a well we're going to talk about what it is actually that's one of the first questions i'm going to ask you when we get past who you are and what you do so john this is where we open up and let you talk about yourself how you got into the world of open source and how you got into the world of amateur radio And then we'll move into
2: a little bit about Ansible. Sure. Okay. So, um, as I, as you said, I'm John the Nice Guy. Uh, I'm G7VRI. I got my license in around about 1996. Uh, my dad was licensed, uh, Golf 7 Kilo Whiskey Zulu. Uh, and he had been into radios since he was, well, my, my mom always used to tell the story that my dad had a, a giant receiver on his bedside table. And, uh, she, when he, when she met him, and she said she was going to, uh, going to get rid of that within a year. And, uh, let's just say when he, when he went silent key, I inherited a lot of radios, most of them from his bedside table. So, uh, yeah, that didn't happen. Um, but so I got into amateur radio, uh, when I was around about 16, 17 uh, took my radio amateurs exam, the RAE, um, as I said, in 96 ish. Um, and, uh, predominantly so that when, uh, he was out and about, we could talk to each other. Uh, I'd always been interested in computers and geekery and things like that. And he and I had set up an old BBC model B computer, which is, uh, sort of the, in education, it was kind of like the computer to have in the late well, mid to late eighty, uh, mid to late nineties, um, and he and I had set up this um, TNC two to pick up packet radio broadcasts because I was interested in computery things, and uh, so he and I set that up, and that got me interested in amateur radio. I've been, I, I ran a um, an AX twenty five BBS, well uh, sort of a BBS, um, when I was at university in Bristol, um, and then kind of dropped out of the hobby a little bit for, for a few years, but it was always kind of in the back of my head. Uh, I moved from where I was living, uh, on the outskirts of London up to Manchester. And, uh, my dad came up and gave me a load of radio stuff and said, you know, you've, you you've been off the air for too long, get back on the air. And whilst I did use it a little bit, um, predominantly trying to use stuff like Echo Link, um, never really picked up an awful lot, but I was, I was using it a bit uh, and then uh, started doing a long commute and bought myself uh, a little Bayer thing UV5R and just started using that there. So that was my amateur radio kind of backstory, uh, which is quite long and waffly, so I'm sorry about that. Um, uh, on the um, open, free and open source stuff, um, again, when I was at university, um, we were using... Uh, very, very early Red Hat systems. I went to work for um, a technical support provider. And one of the things that we did as a technical support provider was um, we got asked if we could support some Linux boxes. So I went away and learned about using using these Linux boxes. And um, uh, it just kind of blossomed a bit from there. I st- started up um, the East London Linux user group, um, which uh, probably was badly named because there was the London uh L- lonix uh, and the greater london lug both of whom uh pretty much consumed all the members uh and so there was two of us that w- were part of the east london lug which wasn't wasn't too great uh, and shortly after i tried to s- set that up i moved north to manchester uh to work for um a solutions integrator uh and uh, kept introducing bits of open source in there uh so the company that i work for uh, I ran a Linux users group for employees there for a while. That was good. We started, we had about 40 members at one point, which, which was quite good. Um, and then I had children and so sort of time evaporated on me. Um, but because I'd been involved in the Linux users group, um, sort of environment, I got more and more involved in kind of being part of the open source system administration side of things uh even though my day job was predominantly about Windows systems. Um and so I just spent a few few years kind of idling uh interested in Linux bits stuff. Uh, I changed jobs a few times to get to um sorry, changed roles in the company I was working for a few times to get to the point where I was using more Linux systems. Um so yeah, I mean that's again quite a long waffly background but I've done, I'm I'm not necessarily the world's best programmer. uh, And in fact, a lot of the source code stuff you'll see from me is is very ropey PHP. Um, I'm not necessarily the world's uh, preeminent systems administrator, um, but what I do like doing is learning enough about something to get my job done and then educating other people about it. Uh, So, I tend to learn about stuff and then blog about it Uh, That's part of the reason I ended up joining the Admin Admin podcast. Um, And um, it's part of the reason why I'm here, to be honest, is because you guys mentioned about Ansible and uh, neither of you seemed particularly au fait with it. You, you knew about it a little bit, but you, neither of you seemed particularly happy talking about it. And so I offered to, is that, is, that, is that an unfair characterization? It's not unfair. It's
0: mildly inaccurate. There was a point in my systems administration career where I spent quite a bit of time, almost a year actually, Doing research and going to conferences and asking right. anybody I knew about different ways to automate sysadmin tasks, specifically things like application setup and mm-hmm. automatic uh, systems provisioning and things like that. And I was looking sure. at uh, solutions like Puppet and Chef and Ansible, all which have different approaches to get these things done. Yeah. Um, and so that's why i was interested in ansible at the time this for me it would consist of a significant retrofit to my daily life if i were to implement any of these solutions Uh, but i'm still interested in them and since you seem to be well versed in ansible we're going to get some details on that so what about for you bill
1: um i'm just a developer (laughs) A developer and a DBA, right? Yeah. So I I just rely on other people to do all that plumbing stuff. Um, But uh, I've always kind of played around with it as well. And I think I I I brought the topic of chef up one day because I went and attended a... uh, a meetup here in town where a guy was kind of showing how chef works and auto provisioning and and how you could spin up all these services and i was like wow that's that's kind of cool i i would never use it but hey it looks cool <laughs> so, <laughs> so it kind of kind of sparked my interest in the, in the in the whole auto provisioning and obviously the company yeah. i work for now is like really big in the devops and and all kinds of continuous integration and uh, you're talking about continuous deployment and all the other you know fancy fancy wordy stuff for sort of want to be agile companies and stuff like that so um yeah this stuff has always kind of interested me from from yeah. that aspect are you
0: going to start triggering everybody with all these marketing speak words like agile and things. So <laughs> it's okay. We can, we so can work past that. <laughs> So, so we are going to talk about Ansible and we're going to get down into it as deep as we think we should at, at you know, when we have this discussion, but before mm-hmm. we describe Ansible and, there, and all that, I'm going to sort of ask a question that's probably putting the cart before the horse a little bit, but why would you use Ansible at all? And why would you use it as opposed to some of those
2: other solutions we just mentioned it? <laughs> okay. So the key thing for me with Ansible, um, is there's a, there's a, there's a term that's used in a lot of these automation systems, which is idempotency. And effectively what that means is that if you run, uh, if you run any of these provisioning systems, um, and it does something. And then you run the same provisioning system again. It shouldn't apply the same set of. It shouldn't try and apply the same set of changes twice. And if you compare that to a Bash script, a simple thing like um, create a file with um, you know three lines in, and these three lines have got to be the specific these specific three lines. If you write that in a Bash script, you do things like you know, does the directory exist? Um, does the file in that directory exist? Does does this line exist in this file? Um, the nice thing about Ansible, and and also Puppet, Chef, uh, Salt, uh, there's a handful of different tools that do it. Um, they'll basically just say, they almost, they almost do like, they create the file separately and then diff the two files and then, I mean, it's, I'm, very, I'm massively simplifying what, what they do, but they'll diff the two files. So you don't, it doesn't try and overwrite something that already exists. It doesn't try and run an action twice. It, it does it once. Um, and it will, it will keep, effectively, if you run the same script five times against a box, you won't touch that file unless the file's changed. So it makes, from a, from a systems administration perspective, um it it just changes it changes your mindset a little bit. The other nice thing about Ansible um is that um the the way that it's written is um is it's all done in a, a simple text file, a YAML file, um which means that you can actually read a lot of these files. Uh, so when it says things like, you know, user, you know, I want this user to exist the user's name is this then the the directory that the user is going to be put in is called this the password is going to be you know this hash um you know only change the password if you're creating this user those sorts of things it's very readable it's a very readable code base. and that's why you might choose ansible over um some other systems um uh, you mentioned before puppet and chef um, th- they're all very similar projects. They're all trying to do very similar things. Um, the nice thing about Ansible is that um, you don't need to install an agent on the machines you're trying to administrate. So if you're trying to administrate networking gear, if you're trying to provision uh, cloud infrastructure, you can run that all from a Linux machine or a Windows subsystem for Linux machine or a, a, a Mac OS machine. Um with puppet and chef certainly when i was getting into working with these systems you you had this kind of concept of um uh, client machines and um administrated, uh, administrative machines and and you, all of the introduction to using puppet all the introduction to chef systems were um very much like um uh, create these two virtual machines This one's going to be your master and this one's going to be your client. Um, and sorry, your, your automator and automated machines, um, you know, and you've got to exchange certificates and stuff like that. Whereas Ansible is, um, uh, so you can run these commands against local machine. Oh, okay. Uh, and if you want to administrate a machine over there, you just SSH to it. So you just need to know your SSH credentials. Oh, okay. That makes life a lot easier. Um, Most of what I do with Ansible is provisioning cloud infrastructure, um, which I'm starting to move away from to use other systems, but I'll explain about that later on possibly. Um, But so that's certainly why I would use Ansible over anything else. So
0: do you see this as applicable to someone who's not necessarily in a formal sysadmin role?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So... um, I think the main reason why this has kind of interested me in what you guys have been talking about is the fact that you guys run your own um, Linux distribution. And I know that some of those pieces are sort of scripts, shell scripts and stuff that you run uh, to create the build image and stuff like that. And a lot of those sorts of things, I suspect could probably be done um, not necessarily easier or better, but maybe in a more readable way than a shell script. Certainly bash scripts I find to be quite, particularly when you're looking at like string handling and string manipulation, bash scripts can be quite dense and difficult to pass. Um, whereas Ansible scripts can be um, a lot more expressive because it's it, you, you combine um, almost a, a full templating language into the config files. Um, so yeah, it's I, I, I like so for example, um, uh, one example of these of using the provisioning system um, is that you know y- you can stand up a you build a machine, um, install Ansible and then run a playbook and that will provision all the software that you use. It will inject all of your configuration settings into you know. Um, .config into ETC config, into ETC files and those sorts of things. Um, you can, you can have it build all of that stuff for you without really having to think a lot about, you know, oh, this is going to be on an Ubuntu system. That's going to be on a red hat system. You know, you can, you can, you can write stuff for yourself quite quickly. Uh, and test it quite quickly. The other nice thing about Ansible um, is that there's a system called Vagrant, um, which lets you spin up virtual machines uh, in VirtualBox. And then once it's finished provisioning that virtual machine, it can then run ans- an Ansible playbook inside that virtual machine. So that's another quite, quite a useful thing. If you, it, it, maybe more for programmers than necessarily for systems administrators, ultimately a lot of where the people that I'm seeing looking at these um automation systems are coming at it from are people who are um you know either in what we call DevOps roles um or you know who are in organizations where they've got, you know, a broad range of technologies that they're expecting a smaller and smaller team to look after. The more you can put into a consistent orchestration system the easier it becomes to administrate all those different things. All right. So I think good. the answer I think the answer to that is yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that
1: was a long yes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what can I, I, think- I say? I'm a radio amateur huh? at <laughs> heart.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Most of the radio amateurs I know don't never pick up a microphone.
1: Oh sorry.
0: All right. So anyway, let's let's move on to Ansible itself. Let's talk a little bit about the application. Um so in, let's, let's try and nutshell this one. Okay. <laughs>
2: what, what is Ansible? <laughs> um, Ansible is a Python script um, that interprets a YAML file, uh, which is a text file, um, which has got a series of instructions. It um, runs those instructions in a sequential order to perform actions on a local or a remote system.
0: All right. And the end result of that is to have that system in
2: question be at a known state once the playbook has run. Uh, not necessarily the whole system, but certainly the things that it touched, right? Um,
0: okay. Fair enough. So let's, let's do some quick and easy stuff. Where does one get Ansible? Uh,
2: so Ansible is, uh, available through Python. Um, so you can run, uh, pip install Ansible. Um, it's only accessible on um, POSIX style systems. So it's only re- well, I'll say POSIX. It's only really available on um, Mac or Linux. Uh, you can run it through Windows sub- subsystem for Linux, which is what I do at work all the time. Um, and it's, you can actually view everything about the project at ansible.com.
0: All right. And do you know, I believe when we first started talking about Ansible, I don't think it was a Red Hat project. When did they
2: acquire it? Uh, Around about 2017, 2016, something like that. Okay, so it was
0: then. I just didn't realize it.
2: Yeah. Okay. So, yes, to be, you know,
0: full disclosure, I guess, not that it matters in the least, I suppose, but it is a Red Hat project. Um, If you go and look at their documentation or anything about Ansible and their tutorials and whatnot, it's all red hat branded. So it's, it's their thing. If,
2: if anything, red hat buying Ansible actually made the project a lot more open. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why, whereas for quite a long while puppet was kind of the, the poster child for the Linux world of how to do automation systems. Um, and chef was kind of the, the poster child for the Mac world. Um, Ansible kind of came out from obscurity by the fact that Red Hat bought it. Um, And one of the things that they did was Ansible's got this sister project called Ansible Tower. And Ansible Tower is almost like a a, a web front end for Ansible Tasks. And it does nice things like uh, taking credentials and hiding them away so that you can, you know, if you've got root credentials for all of your fleet of... 69 gazillion hosts, um, you don't need to give those to your administrators. You you hide those away inside Ansible, and you run playbooks against the hosts for through that. Um, when Ansible was bought, that was a commercial project. Um, and one of the things that Red Hat did relatively quickly, I think within sort of six months, nine months, they took Ansible Tower, which was this commercial product, and created AWX, which is their um, open source uh, version of that. So if you want to run Ansible Tower without paying for it, you can get yourself a copy of AWX and run that on your on your machine.
0: All right, very good. Well, I'm going to answer the next two questions that I was going to ask you because you've already sort of answered them. The architecture on this is agentless, so it's simply a server that goes and does things that either can do it on a local machine or it touches a remote machine using SSH,
2: so that's easy enough. It will also talk... um in the recent kind of releases, um, they're now looking at some more connection architectures. So for example, I do a lot of work with um, uh, FortiGate Firewalls and things like that. Um, and that's not me endorsing them more than any other product, but that's what I'm working on mostly at the moment. And that's all HTTP based. Um, I'm also working with um, Azure and AWS as cloud providers. And Ansible will talk to those products. Um, Using uh, what, an established REST API or? Yeah, so the established REST API. So with the FortiGate, um, that's done by uh, specifying. So when you, one of the things that you do when you create um, what they call plays or playbook, is you specify the host you're gonna talk to. And that reads from an inventory file or an inventory system. Uh, And that can either be, you know, a list of almost like a, um, a host's file on your machine, Um, or you can have it go away and ask AWS and Azure, you know, tell me a list of all the hosts in this environment. Um, One of the things that you can do um, is specify a FortiGate or a, a Cisco IOS switch or a Netgear piece of tin, all these different systems. It can actually talk to those systems using HTTP requests and there's plugins for communicating with those systems natively inside the, inside the Ansible code base.
0: All right. Fantastic. And as far as installation, you said you can use PIP to do the installation. I've also seen that on some systems, at least uh, including Red Hat and presumably Red Hat derivatives that it's, uh, available in the EPEL repository, uh, just as an app install or an RPM install or a DNF install.
2: Yeah, it's, so it's definitely available in those, in the repos. What I've found though is that, um, as a project, it moves faster than a lot of the packaging systems can cope with. Um, so for example, I do a lot of work on Debian based systems and the version of Ansible that's in Debian is something like 2.2. The version that's in Ubuntu is 2.4. Um, The current released version of Ansible is 2.8, and there's a lot of breaking changes that happen between 2.4 and 2.8. So even though you can get them through package archives, um, if you're going to be using it on a regular basis, it's worth installing it from PIP. Partially because what you can do with PIP is you can pin specific versions so if you're working on a code base that is, um, has features that are reliant on 2.7, say for sake of argument, um, and you don't want to test it to see if it makes any changes between 2.7 and 2.8, you can just pin the version of pip. Now I get that you can do that with package managers, but if you're, if you're, if you're not guaranteed that all of your developers or all, all, all your systems and en- engineers are using a specific version you can require they use a specific version from pip, whereas it's harder in my experience to do that with Debian packages or Red Hat packages.
0: Fair enough. So let's uh, move on from like the, the real basics of Ansible and like why you might want to use it and what it does to talking about how it does everything. So the first thing we need to talk about is how you configure it and the configuration of Ansible is literally how it works. What your configuration is, is the playbook that creates the things that actually happen when Ansible does what it's designed to do. And that is written in YAML, which is yet another markup language to create what they call Ansible automation language. Um, so if you would maybe discuss YAML a little bit and then like what you
2: might see in an Ansible playbook. Sure. So, um, Uh, A little while ago, I actually did um, uh, a a deep dive episode um, in the Admin Admin podcast. Um, And actually, as part of that, we produced a Git repository with a whole load of examples. Um, So um, essentially, uh, I can give you a link to that to stick in the show notes as well because that might might help people to kind of have a look at a file that's that's got some relatively basic examples of this, um, but essentially um, a an Ansible play playbook, as you said, is a, is a YAML file, and a YAML file is, is literally just um, uh, it's a, it's a an easier way of expressing um, a JSON file uh, a, a, a an array of data. Um, so you're typically seeing um, different uh, levels of your array being marked up with hyphens, um, and white space is very important in YAML files. So if you're used to writing Python, um, then uh, or, or even just looking at Python, then you're going to find uh, YAML files quite easy to read. Um, so you've got um, uh, your variable names are um, uh, strings, so you can have things like words like hosts uh, or tasks. You might see with items and things like that, um, and that's uh, on the left-hand side of a colon and then a space. So uh, you'd look at a, you'd look at a string describing instructions that you want to run against all of your hosts. It would say hyphen space hosts colon space and then the word all. And that just basically means look through your inventory file, and I'll explain about the inventory file probably in a second, um, and and run these actions on all of those hosts. Um, You then see the the keyword something like tasks, uh, and that that means here's a list of tasks that I want you to perform on that box. Um, And then you'll have um, in, again, with that hyphen space structure, indented. Um, you then see those instructions there. So for example, uh, again, I work on predominantly Ubuntu systems. So you might see apt colon, uh, or if you're working on Red Hat systems, you might see yum or DNF colon as a task. And then the, and then a new line, a couple of spaces, a couple more spaces and the word name colon, and then a list of packages you wanted to install. So say, for example, you wanted to install, um, uh, git and HTTP, D. You'd say, um, t- so hosts all, tasks, yum, name, colon, quotes. And then um, you said it was YAML files. It's, it's not exactly right. It's YAML files and um, uh, a templating language called Ginger. Um, and what Ginger does is it basically adds some um, some, some extra p- processing that you can do inside those those YAML files. Um, so effectively it means you can inject instructions. So in um, the, the this thing where you're saying you want to install two separate packages, what you can do is you can say name colon quotes, and then a pair of curled braces, which basically means start running Ginger at this point. Um, and it then says um, item, a pair of closing those curled braces, and then a quote. Um, and then the instruction with underscore items, in the same indentation as the word apt, and then a list of the packages you want to install. So it will then say, you know, git, httpd and so on and so forth. Um, and that basically says run the apt command or the yum command. And I'm getting confused cause I'm looking at two separate files on screen, which isn't helping. Um, so run, run this packaging command with this list of packages. So it basically says apt install git. And then once that's finished apt install. HTTPD or at, you know, yum install HTTPD um, and so on and so forth. So that then what it gives you is a way of giving it a, a series of commands to go away and run and the, the idempotency bit becomes key here, because what that means is if you look at that and you run that and you say, I want, I want it to run, to install, Git and HTTPD and it's finished running and you go, ah, oh, I meant to install, um, mosh. SSHD or something like that, not SSHD, but you know some other package in there. You just add to that list of things that you want it to install another line. So you say mosh, and then rerun the playbook again. And what that does is it goes, well, I've already got git installed, so I don't need to install it. I've already got httpd installed, so I don't need to install it. Ah, mosh, I'll install that. And again, for packaging, that's not a big issue because with packaging, you kind of know. Well, if you run, if you tell it to install httpd or git. It's already there, so it's just going to go. I've already got those, you don't need those again. But it becomes more key when you start looking at um, configuration files. Um, so you might want to say um, in uh, etc. ssh, sshd config, um, change the port from 22 to uh, 6022 or something like that. Um, now you can run, you can do that with a, a set expression. Um, you can. One of the things that you f- would find more difficult with a said expression is if you wanted to inject a new line somewhere specifically in that file. So, say, for example, you knew that the line port colon 22 was commented out because well, port's probably a bad example. Um, allow root to log in, that line's commented out. Um, but you wanted to in- inject a line underneath it that said um, allow root to log in uh, with a SSH, with a key only. What you can then do is you can say um, line in file. So that, whereas before I mentioned about the packaging commands apt and yum, you'd instead use the line in file module uh, and say line in file this line um, before this point, not after this point, um, you can say, um, look for a regex a regular expression um, after a certain point, before a certain point in the file. And if it doesn't exist there, then add the line before that point or after that point and things like, so that's, it's things like that you can do quite nicely with Ansible. Um, and again, so if you, if you then run that a second time, you then it's then not having to, um, check to make sure that that line exists at a specific point in that file which is, which is complicated with bash scripts. It's doable, but it's complicated. Whereas with Ansible, it's just an extra instruction before a line, after line. So Um,
0: from, so before you, uh, I forget to ask. So, so by that logic, then a module in the, in the terms of Ansible is sort of like an object method or a method included in Ansible that does a specific task in a playbook. It's something predefined that does a specific function?
2: Correct. Um, so one of the things that Ansible has, um, is, uh, there's actually quite a large library of, um, Ansible modules. Uh, and when you look at the documentation of, um, Ansible, there's a, a giant modules index, um, uh, and it's got thousands, um, hundreds of thousands of modules, um, covering everything from, um, uh. ACI um, infrastructure, which I think is a Cisco 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 terminal um, technology, uh, it goes through um, uh, AWS and Azure. Um, you've got Git commands. You've got CVS checkouts. You've got um, uh, UFW statements, uh, and and all of these are Python. It's just Python code. Um, And you can take the code that's in um, the Git repository for Ansible and learn how to write your own modules. So um, part of the reason that I got on board with Ansible in the first place was because we were working with um, a customized OpenStack environment at work. The OpenStack environment we were using, they'd written some custom code, which meant that a lot of the native OpenStack commands were the native OpenStack um, modules for Terraform, for Ansible, for Puppet, for Chef, all of these things that have got cloud provisioning infrastructure code in there, weren't working. One of my colleagues spent around about two weeks um, reading up on what the differences were, um, and because he had access to all the source code, was able to just sit there and you know churn away Python code, mm-hmm. and we ended up with a cup co- you know, several thousand lines of code, but code that would talk to these custom OpenStack modules in the same way that you'd talk to any of the other OpenStack modules. And in fact, we were intermingling native OpenStack commands and this custom OpenStack infrastructure commands inside one playbook, which was quite cool. All right. Very good.
0: And I know we could talk about configuring this like right down to the nitty gritty, but I think we've got the basic idea. Mm. There are a couple of additional things that ansible can do um and specifically as regards to the playbook apparently there are what are called handlers and i assume that a handler is something that reacts to something that is done previously in the playbook that allows ansible to then do something else or to respond in a way
2: to what happened in the playbook yeah so what happens is when you there's there's a standard set of um statements that follow every ansible module um so um with items um which is now really renamed as loop um so so loop does stuff um but there's t- there's two key other statements that go with that um one of which is um register so that's basically saying register the output of this into a variable i can use somewhere else uh, and the other is, um, notify. So you notify a handler that something has happened. So, and effectively all that handler is, is another task, another module. Um, it's specified in exactly the same way. So, you know, say for example, um, I mentioned before, you know, um, I want to install HTTPD. I want to edit the HTTPD configuration. I want to, um, run let's encrypt, say for your sake of argument, to create a certificate for that server. So those three statements, they would all notify httpd that the httpd needs to restart. So then you create a handler, and a handler basically says, um, uh, if I'm notified that something's happened, that they want me to do something. So basically any change to action, so a, a task has, three results, uh, either um, failed, in other words, I stopped working at this point, uh, changed or okay. Changed means something happened. Okay means nothing happened or sort of nothing happened. I don't I don't need to be notified that something happened here. Um, so if you have something that's changed, you can notify, sorry, just hit my mic up. Uh, you can notify, um, notify a handler that it needs to run and typically that would be something like you know um, systemd reload or service reload so you can make it so that when an ansible module has done something you can then cause something else to happen like the service restarting like um uh, so i've got a script that uh, updates um linux servers and if it sees that an update has been run it will notify the handler that it has to go away and determine whether a reboot needs to occur. And if a reboot needs to occur, it will perform a reboot. Those sorts of things. It's quite cool, I think.
0: Yeah, very much so. And there's one more part of a playbook. I I don't think this is specifically within the playbook, but it's in part of Ansible that allows you to define roles. And I assume the roles are set up so that you can have certain users perhaps maybe users not the right nomenclature but a certain subset of uh people who are going to access and use ansible to have access to some of the things that it does and you can define permissions no. in that way no
2: no completely different I'm afraid All right, right so fantastic uh, that's
0: uh, why we we have you here
2: yeah so um a role is um like a it's like a package uh so if you if you uh it's a package of instructions. So, um, a standard playbook typically has got, you know, um, a series of hosts to perform actions on and then a series of tasks to run those on those hosts. A role is a way of abstracting out a collection of tasks um, and some variables that might impact those tasks and the handlers that you might notify from those tasks and uh, perhaps some files that are or templates that are specific to those tasks into a module to themselves. Obviously, they can't use the term modules because that's already an Ansible thing elsewhere. So um, roles are basically, um, I think effectively what it came from was you would define a server is going to have this role applied to it. So that role might be it's going to be a web server. So in your playbook, you'd say um, uh, on these five hosts, include role, web server. Um, And that in that role, that role is effectively just a directory that lives in the roles directory inside Ansible. Uh, And inside that roles directory is a series of other directories, uh, tasks, handlers, variables, um, defaults, files, and so on and so forth. And each of those folders, with the exception of files and templates, is a file called main.yaml. And main.yaml is basically just the things that would be in there. So tasks will literally just be an array of tasks. Under um, uh, handlers will be an array of handlers and so on and so forth. So what you get is you get a package of instructions that apply to a specific host or a specific machine in a, in a, in a data center. So you'd say, uh, this host is, as I said, a web server. So the tasks will be, you know, install HTTPD, configure HTTPD, and then the handle will be restart HTTPD. Um, and you might have variables that say, um, I want you to be an HTTPD server that's running on port 12345 instead of 80. But you can override those variables by calling the role with a collection of variables that can override your default variables, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's, it's Unfortunately, roles is quite a large part of how ansible works but it's 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 quite complicated to try and explain
1: how it works unfortunately um <laughs> that's in a right. windows world like when you log into windows server you would see a very similar thing you choose the role of the box that you're actually running so i think for most sysadmins, admins are probably used to understanding the role as like what actually is the purpose of this particular yeah. machine is,
0: yeah. is Ansible, just because it came up with me thinking about you describing roles, is Ansible capable of differentiating system types automatically? Like if you wanted to set, say you had four systems, and I don't know why you'd want to do this, but let's say you were running two Debian machines and two um, Red Hat machines, for example, and you wanted to identify each one with a static IP address, well, those configuration files are located in different places on different systems. Can it figure that out on its own, or do you have to... Manually configure the
2: playbook to do that properly. Yeah, absolutely. It's all over that. Um, so I mentioned before that we did this deep dive, uh, one of the examples in there I've actually got is called example two. Um, and, um, in that example, uh, we've got it. So it's saying, you know, when Ansible distribution is equal to CentOS or Ansible distribution is equal to red hat enterprise Linux. And then another state which says when Ansible distribution equals Debian or Ansible distribution equals Ubuntu. Um, And uh, what it does so when Ansible first connects to a host, it runs a fact gathering operation, unless you explicitly tell it not to. Um, And it does things like it will ask, you know, uh, what's the host name? What's the fully qualified host domain name? Tell me about all the network interfaces. Tell me about the um, drives that are mounted. Tell me about all of the um, uh, kernel settings. Tell me how much RAM you've got installed. Tell me um, what the uptime is. What's the date and time on this box? Uh, tell me which version of Ansible you're running. Tell me which version of Python you're running, things like that. Um, and it stores all of those into a variable. So that's the first thing it does. It goes away and it asks for everything. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the early examples that I actually have got in that that Git repo um, is a... So when you call Ansible uh, in the way that I've been describing up till now, that's actually running a command called ansible-playbook. dash um, If you just run Ansible, it goes away and runs a command it runs one module against a host. Um, and um, one of those modules that you can run is called setup. So if you run Ansible space minus m, setup space localhost, what it does is it runs that fact checking operation against the local machine and just dumps the whole lot out to the console. So you can actually read through and you can say, oh, um, I'm looking for, you know, what's the what's the variable it returns when, uh, I want to know, you know, what's the variable it returns for everything. And I want to look for a string that says eth zero because that's the interface that I'm looking for. And it will say something like, you know, what's the default, you know, uh, ansible underscore default underscore interface. And then there's an array of data you can then step through and, and read. Um, so that's quite a useful way of understanding things. So yeah, so it, it can work out what hosts are doing. The other way that you can look at it, um, is, uh, particularly if you're, if you're using some sort of configuration management database. So I mentioned before about AWS and Azure, uh, they both will tag, you can tag hosts with specific, um, key value pairs. Um, so what you can do with Ansible is you can say, go away and ask Azure or AWS or DigitalOcean or whoever, um, for their entire inventory, um, and, uh, one of the things that that will do when it returns that that list is it will actually group things by tags. So you can say <clears throat> when you provision uh, a Windows host, oh, that's the other thing. Ansible will talk to Windows as well. I forgot to mention that. Uh, if you provision a Windows host and say that that's going to be running IIS, uh, and then you've got uh, a, Uh, red hat host red hat box that's going to be running httpd and you've got uh, a debian box that's going to be running nginx why you've got all three of those systems i don't know but they're all going to have they're all going to have to have certain um certificates loaded on or something i'm i'm pulling a very bad example out of the air here but you know um if they're all tagged with web server you can say in that in your playbook um uh, hosts So, uh, you know, your playbook starts hosts uh, colon web servers because it worked out that they're all web servers. Uh, Apply role web server. So it then has your role can then have, you know, if this is a Red Hat system, go away and configure such and such a package. If this is a Debian system, go away and configure such and such a package, you know, and so on and so forth. Does the Windows integration use like WMI or something? Uh, it uses WinRM because okay. um, uh, there's a quite a, a broad set of um, packages that, in Python that will talk uh, WinRM. Um, there are some caveats with setting WinRM up. Um, you need to either get certificates onto your Ansible box or you need to configure the Windows box to be less secure with WinRM. But there's lots of instructions on how to do it. And it is, once you've got it set up, it's quite understandable how it's working. But the first pass is a bit a bit hairy sometimes.
0: All right, very good. And I think we're down to like my last bullet point on, on sort of the fundamentals of Ansible and getting it set up, which is inventories, which you insist on pronouncing incorrectly. But um, just kidding. <laughs> so as far as inventories are concerned um can you define those and describe how they're used
2: sure so um and in- i can't even pronounce it the way you do i'm sorry um, <laughs> um, an inventory hilarious. file is um is effectively it, it can be one of two ways it's either using um what they call any style so um um it's a text file with square brackets that group certain things together, uh, or it can be a JSON or a YAML file. Uh, But essentially um, what they all define is here is a collect, if you've got an inventory file that is a static file, it's basically saying here is a list of hosts and here are the variables I want you to apply against those hosts. So if you wanted to refer to um, a host, which has got an IP address of one nine two zero two one as being Bob, sake of argument, everyone knows it as Bob, even though its actual host name is something like, you know, um, ex2517 decaf, I don't know, some, some random string. Um, you can define that as in Ansible, call it Bob, uh, Ansible underscore host name, which is just a variable equals, um, and then you can either give it its IP address, 192021, or you can give it its host name, a b c d e f g whatever um and you define the username so by default as i said it uses ssh so um the username if you don't define a username is going to be the username of the user that's running the command um you can use you can specify a password but again because it's ssh is expecting you to use public private keys um and that you've got the public-private key, the public key already on the server. Uh, you can specify a password, but then it means you have to install more packages, which is not a problem, but it's something else to bear in mind. Um, and then there's some extra statements that you might want to do. So say, for example, um, you always log in with an unprivileged user, I know, Bob. So you log into this host with the username Bob with a specific password, and then you want to become the root user so typically you would sudo on a linux box um so you can say become equals true because you want to become a privileged user uh, you can say become method equals sudo if you want to but it defaults to that um and you can say become user you can say root if you wanted to or if you wanted to become you know xim or postfix or web web data or whatever um and you can provide a become password if you want to um if you don't specify a password and the box needs a password you can specify on a command line uh if you need to provide a sudo password and you don't provide it in your in your inventory file and frankly you shouldn't really be encoding passwords as plain text into any of these files there is a way around that and i'll come back to that in a second um you can provide all these in on a command line. Um, if you're using Ansible Tower, you can provide these as credentials, um, so that you're not having to provide them explicitly as elements on a command. Um, uh, but yeah, so you provide all these strings. You can put different ports. You can say use different connection types. So I mentioned before you can use HTTP. Um, if you're using, uh, Junos or switches from Juno. I don't know. He just disconnected. (laughs) There he is. I just got disconnected. (laughs) Yeah. So you were saying if you're using Junos or Juniper routers, (laughs) excellent. I didn't lose a lot then. Right. Let me just uh, restart the uh, recording. Oh, it didn't appear to have stopped the recording. Ah, hang on a second. That's why. Restart. Right. Okay. So you're going to get a second file from me. It's a good thing this is all in in all all in audacity, isn't it? (laughs) I don't know how much editing of this you do. Uh, very little as little as humanly possible. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, dude. Um, <laughs> right. So yes. So if you've got something like a Junos switch or an iOS Cisco iOS box or something like that, um, it will, you can specify there to use this connection type of, you know, whatever the specific connection method is to connect to it. Um, so these are all just s- strings. And you can put as many of these strings in there as you want. Um, On top of that, in the same directory as you specify your playbook, um, you can also create group directories and host directories. And these are referred to as host variables and group variables. It's actually abbreviated down to vars, but variables. Um, And so in group variables, um, sorry, in the inventory file, you can group hosts together. Um, So, say so for example like i said we have we've got these web servers a windows box a linux box and a bsd box um but they're all web servers so they're all going to have web content in them um you can create a group just by putting a bracket a square brackets around the word web server and then list all the hosts that are going to be in that group um and you can have groups of groups so you can have um uh servers versus switches for example so you can have servers, colon, children, uh, Windows servers, Linux servers, um, BSD servers. And then you can have switches, uh, Junos switches, Cisco switches, others. Um, and then, so in that group VARS directory, you could have Linux servers, and then uh, that will be a YAML file. And you can just provide a list of variables that are specific to all of your um, Linux servers, sake of argument. Um, In the host variables, so say, for example, you've got three different um, servers and for some reason they've all picked up different um, primary network interface names. And rather than asking the host what's the primary interface for these and having to figure out where they are, you've been on these boxes enough, you can go in and say, well, actually, uh, host Bob has got, you know, eth0 as his primary interface and host Dave has got uh, EN0 is its primary interface, and um, that really random box over there is using Wi-Fi, so it's WL3P whatever whatever. Um, so you can encode these in as host variables, um, and then those are then usable by your playbooks. All the variables that you specify are usable. Um, specific key ones, as I mentioned, Ansible user, uh, Ansible password, Ansible host, um, become. These are all key variable names that it uses to make connections but you can reuse them anywhere the other thing i mentioned was that sometimes you don't want to put clear text strings into your playbooks particularly if you've got um privilege if you've got secrets um that you might be storing in a public git repository or something like that what you can do with that is there's another tool in the ansible suite called ansible vault an ansible vault um, is basically just uh, an encryption system uh that you pre-share a key around this around all the people that believe in the playbook um so you can use uh, ansible vault to encrypt a string uh, and that can be uh, an inline piece of text or it can be a whole file um so in the past i've used it for encrypting a list of users and their ssh keys for example
0: so going back briefly to what you're saying you can um... You said if you had some server, for example, it had a, like a really long AWS host name and everyone knows it as Bob, you create that abstraction. I assume if you're using Tower or AWX
2: that they only see the abstraction. Um, so if, uh, effectively, under the surface, um, Tower is all about um, privilege control and job management. Um, If you delve into it as an administrator, you see all the things that you would see if you were running it locally on your machine. Um, What you can do is you can abstract out the the credentials so that only designated users can see the credentials. You can abstract out the fact that this has got an Ansible vault string in there. So only administrators can see the Ansible vault password and things like that. Um, The inventory file is just classed as another project another another um piece of the 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 system as a whole it's just another text file that it creates on the fly or it can be a remote system that it's asking for details about your estate all right cool and just for the record inventory <laughs> inventory <laughs> this is like you and your wacky aluminum <laughs> aluminium is that what you're talking about aluminium, aluminium yeah yeah <laughs> yeah
0: uh yes. yeah. we also have elevators here not lifts. Um so <laughs> <laughs> I I do this every time we talk to somebody from the UK. It, it's it just tickles me. <laughs> um so so what so what are the typical ways someone would actually invoke ansible?
2: Um so I've mentioned two of them already. Um you've got the ansible command line. So ansible um dash -m lets you trigger a single module to do one action, which is useful for, uh, there's there's two commands that you typically see that done as. One, which is ping. So basically, are you responding to me? Yes. Uh, and the other is setup. up. Tell me everything about this host that is dis- discovered through the facts gathering system. Um, you can use them to do diagnostic-y things, um, but really that's only if you're doing development stuff or you've got a bug that. Somebody in the Ansible project wants to find out more about what's gone wrong. Um, what people are more likely to use is Ansible dash playbook. Um, in which case, you do Ansible dash playbook space the name of the playbook, and then potentially space minus i for inventories, and then the name of the in, sorry inventory. Sorry,
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna if you start walking around, great, you know. England saying inventory you'll, you'll be thrown out. I
3: think
2: yeah, it'd be fine. It'd be fine. They'll understand. <laughs> I've worked with some crazy, crazy Americans. Or oh, okay. That's what, how you're going to spin that? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Um, uh, so the, you can specify this, the, this hosts file that you want it to, I'm going to refer to it as that now. Cause it's just easier. Stop for <laughs> Mickey taking, um, uh, so yeah, so you can tell it to, to, this is where your hosts file is. Um, so, um, that's the two main ones that when you're kind of actively working on stuff from your local machine, you'll, you'll be using it. Um, you can use Ansible Tower. As I said, it's just, it's a web server that does job management and credential management for you. Um, some people might use Ansible, uh, as part of a continuous integration system like Jenkins, perhaps, or Circle CI. Mm-hmm. Um, Some people, uh, you might use Ansible as part of something like Vagrant. Um, So um, if you've not come across Vagrant, Vagrant is a way of just storing in a text file um, a list of instructions to provision virtual machines. Um,
0: Can you do something like really crazy where you could define... A web server inventory by IP address range, and then Ansible—if it happened to detect
2: a new machine coming online—would just go ahead and auto-provision it. So, (laughs) what you you can with Ansible Tower? Um, So, with Ansible Tower, you can say um, every X minutes, rerun a job, Um, and that job will be to try and connect to all of the hosts in this IP range and connect over SSH to them. What you're more likely to find though, is if you are talking to a system that is doing uh, automatic spin-up, spin-down of virtual machines, say for example in um, VMware Cloud or AWS or um, Azure or DigitalOcean, what you're more likely to do is rather than say, here's a list of IPs that you might be in, try an SSH to all of them. What you're more likely to do is say, Ask the inventory system that's built into that system for a list of all the hosts, and then connect to those.
0: So there's a module or whatever that's uh, that's responding to AWS, for example, that knows how to ask AWS through an uh,
2: API or whatever what what hosts are in are are in its cloud or whatever. Yeah. So um, so I mentioned before that you've got this inventory file. <laughs> Um,
0: I'm gonna break you yet.
2: <laughs> no, you're not. Uh, this in this inventory file um that's got <sighs> I hate you guys so much right now. <laughs> <laughs> It's more so Rust than New Bill, it's fine. I it, know oh, it's all Rust. Um so the inventory file um can be a static file, but it can also be a program. And as long as that program returns a JSON file. It can do anything. So you can, if you've got an access database, sake of argument or an Microsoft SQL server or a MySQL server or an Oracle SQL server that you can make it return a JSON string. If you've got a PHP web server that has done a load of NMAP scans, you, as long as it will return a JSON file, you can, you can feed that back into Ansible. So instead of calling Ansible minus I, so Ansible dash playbook minus I, my hosts file, it calls my hosts dot shell. And that shell script is going away and asking for a JSON file. It will then run its playbook against that. Okay. So, so, yeah, as lo- so you can have
0: any data fit into Ansible as long as it's presented
2: back to it in a, in a format that it understands. Correct. Okay. Well, that's pretty powerful it really is and the other thing as well that you can do if you've got um your uh if you've got a static file that's got uh, you know um i don't know uh web hosts square brackets 1 colon 99 close square brackets and then you've got a list of hosts from 1 to 5000 it will pick out servers 1 through to 99 you can tell it you know um uh, hosts a-D star, and it will pick out A to D. Um, so you can do all that sort of crazy stuff with it as well. If you've got a specific naming convention for your estate, you can just say, here's a list of all my servers, and the groups are, you know, anything that says EXC is an exchange server. Anything that is web is a web server. Anything that's um, NAG is, is monitoring servers and stuff like that. Whatever, you, whatever your naming convention is, Ansible will work around it.
0: All right, cool. So is there anything about Ansible Tower, the overlay in AWX that we need to touch on that we haven't already? I think we sort of got a general idea of what it does, but is there anything else it offers? Um,
2: it's a As I said, it's a job scheduler. Um, it's a, it provides a REST API to anything else. So one of the things that um, I see not a lot but I've seen is that people have um, Ansible Tower hooked up into their CI CD system, their continuous integration system. So that when you um, say, for example, you've got a Git repository that's got your uh, Ansible playbook in it, and you've got another Git repository that's got your inventory file in it. Um, When you make a change to either of those, you've got a post commit hook in your GitHub repository or your GitLab or you know, whatever whatever um source code repository system you've got, you can then make um your CI C D system or your webhook system from your Git repository message Ansible Tower and say, I'm now ready for you to go away and do a job for me. And it can then trigger without you going into it and touching anything so instead of before I said about you know, you can have it request every five minutes, go and repoll your state, repoll your state, repoll your state. What you can do instead is say, every time I commit a new commit or a new tag or whatever your thing is, um, that triggers an ansible tower job. Um, you can have Ansible tower pull from your version control system automatically, so um, you can say. Uh, I've got a dev branch that I want you to um, that we're going to do all our pre-production tests on. So before before you touch production, you have to commit to pre-prod, uh, and then it will run. It will trigger a CI/CD job to go away and run a load of smoke tests with those playbooks through your estate. Um, and if I'm talking gibberish here, just let me know. But um, you know, so you can say, you know, before this. Playbook goes against live. It has to go through CI/CD. So you say, you know, before we will merge this branch of the source code of the, the 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 Ansible playbooks into master, it's got to run against preprod and prod. It's got to run against you know dev, preprod, prod, and they've got all got to go green. So again, the output from that playbook can in turn send a uh, send a response back to your Git repository, your Jenkins system, so you can chain all these systems together again, making use of this REST API to basically automate all of your provisioning in one go- in one go-, go. So that's quite neat.
0: Yeah, that is very neat. And so Tower, I'm guessing, is a is like a pay product.
2: Correct. Okay. It's a licensed product.
0: Uh, however, AWX is the free version
2: of said. <laughs> It's the open source version. It's the upstream project that a that tower is pulled from. Okay. Is it just as powerful? I mean, is it literally the same thing? Just, if anything, it's more up to date than towers Than towers. Okay. But, but it just comes w- so support right? <laughs> it, it, right. Well, it, it, there is, there is support, but it's community support. Um, it's through IRC predominantly. Um, and there's a GitHub repository as well. Um, but yeah, um, one thing I have found is that the Ansible project developers are, because of how many companies feed into ansible it can seem very bureaucratic at the outset so there's lots of like um working parties and stuff like that again it's what happens when you've got a project that's got several million lines of code in it from hundreds of companies feeding into it um but if you raise an issue there's a small working party for each section of the code base. So all of the AWS stuff is all handled by the AWS working party. So when you raise a bug against the AWS group, they'll, they might direct you to a specific IRC channel just for Ansible AWS or Ansible Azure or Ansible Juniper or Ansible whatever. Um, but they're really welcoming. I mean, ridiculously welcoming. It um, So, uh, I was looking at uh, the, the Ginger, which is the the, the templating language, uh, is how you can you can do some really wacky stuff with Ginger. Um, uh, and uh, I had a whole thing about, I was trying to do some really complicated stuff. And I was really struggling on how to do this just with Ginger. And somebody said, oh, I'll just create a, uh, a filter or something else. I can't remember what it was now. Um, and I couldn't make it work. I joined the IRC channel for. Ansible project. And somebody from the Ansible developers team said, This is too in-depth to discuss in this channel. Come and join us in the developers channel and raise it here. And they were like, This is how you raise an issue. This is this is the specific people you need to tag in it. This is the right thing to do. This is how you do it. Try running this command, try doing that command. And they were really hands-on and really helpful. Um, and I know that you do that get that with other with other open source projects. Um but this was probably one of the most friendliest groups I ever came across.
0: Well, that's good. That's an excellent plug for community technical support. You usually don't hear
2: that about technical mm. support in general. So, And the uh, other good thing about Ansible is because it's created by a multinational company, Red Hat is all over the world. Um, and it's developed by contributors from all over the world. There's always someone in the group to answer questions. It might not necessarily, uh, and again, I mean, it's, it's IRC. One of the typical things that people used to say about IRC was, you know, you'd ask a question and six hours later you might get an answer. Um, there is a little bit of that sometimes, but typically, if you go in there and you don't get an answer, um, it's not six hours. You might be waiting half an hour. And again, my experiences may not be the same as everyone else's. I might be very fortunate in that I'm, I'm in, you know, GMT, <laughs> but certainly that's been my experience so far. Well, half an hour is a better SLA than most actual paid support. (laughs) And and it's community, so you know the 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 advice you get back may not necessarily be accurate. Right, but but it's free. (laughs) It's free. Um, and if you if you are the sort of company that is relying on uh, Ansible Tower for you know significant proportions of parts of your estate, then you would want to then be paying for support because when it breaks at two o'clock in the morning. You know, you don't want the developers sitting there going, oh, I don't know what to do or sitting on IRC going help half an hour, help. Right. Okay. So there's one more thing I want to touch on before we let you go. And that is Ansible Galaxy. Well, actually, we've kind of discussed it already, uh, which is Ansible (laughs) Roles. So Ansible Galaxy is the web repository for Ansible Roles. And effectively, um, Ansible Galaxy is just a way of presenting uh, Ansible roles in a web interface. There's also a command line tool, so Ansible-Galaxy, to obtain uh, the roles. And it will then download those and include those into your various playbooks. So, Um, So
0: the Ansible that you install on your system, does that include every single
2: module that's in Galaxy? Right. Uh, You're you mixing terminology. There. Oh, sorry, sorry. Role. <clears throat> so, it Ansible does not contain any roles by default. You can create roles. You can obtain roles from Galaxy. But effectively, all that a role is is a directory with a series of YAML files in. Um. That's what so, I'm
0: saying. So it, so it's it's a list of the things that Ansible
2: can do like prepackaged i guess
3: mm-hmm. sort, of. sort
2: of so what you're more right so what you're more likely to see in galaxy is something like um uh configure nginx so it's here's, it's an opinionated instruction set for provisioning an nginx config based on what that person's done so, say for example, you typically have, um, nginx with specific uh, instructions around modules you want included, around particular directory names you want including, um, and particular um uh, proxies or whatever. Yeah, it's an opinionated thing. So you basically say, um, you know, uh, I want to have a role that uh, just sets up my default server. There might be 56 or 60 or f- 6 million. It won't be 6 million. But there might be, you know, 50 Nginx roles in Ansible Galaxy. And you've got to then sit through that. you can then read through them and say, actually, that one doesn't do what I wanted to do. That one doesn't do what I wanted to do. Um, but you can you can gather ideas from those roles, or if you hit the right one that does exactly what you want, maybe it's three lines and you just didn't even realize you could do it that way. Um, you can then get that galaxy role. So get uh, ansible galaxy, get, I think for, it's been a while since I've done it. Um, such and such role name. So it will be something like it will be um, my GitHub username slash the role name or sorry, underscore role name. So, say for example, john the nice guy underscore common and that's my common stuff that I do for all, all certain style of servers. Um, you might look at that and go, that is exactly what I want ansible galaxy. So you can then say, I want to use that role. Um, and it's versioned so you can say you know I want that role at 1.0.0 fantastic um i then come along and I, actually i've changed my mind. i'm going to do it this way instead so it now goes uh, uh john the nice guy underscore common uh, 2.0.0 and it's now not using nginx anymore it's now using apache and it's now using you know um uh, uh instead of certbot it's using some other ssl provider and stuff um and again you can pin to specific Things, um, Galaxy is very good at tracking uh, stuff like how many people have used this module, uh, how many times has it been starred in the Git repository, uh, where do I go and find, where do I go and raise issues about it? Um, it's effectively just a way of surfacing things that you can do, as opposed to writing it yourself. Um, and if you have got a lot of Ansible deployed on your infrastructure you may want to use your own Ansible Galaxy roles um, through Ansible Galaxy, but equally a role can be obtained from your own Git repositories. You don't need to use Ansible Galaxy for it. You can say, use my version control system. You can just include it in your repositories. You can use it as a submodule in your Git repo, for example. Um, so it's, sorry. It might be
0: a time saver, though. If you can actually find something that somebody's already done that does what you want it to do or very close
2: to what you want it to, then you can modify it locally and and use it that way. Yeah. Um, What I would say is if you're going to do that, your best bet is to um, clone the repository into your own version, into your own um, source control system uh, and make the changes there and refer to your own version of it rather than pulling from the ansible galaxy one purely because um it's, it's like any open source stuff if the upstream doesn't accept your patches right no you, that makes perfect sense yeah um it then becomes more tricky to manage so for example one of the guys that i work with um found there's a, a guy who's extremely prolific in the ansible galaxy world a guy called jeff Geerling, uh he's a gearing guy he wrote one of the I think it was DevOps with Ansible or something like that. He's written, he's written a few books on Ansible um, and he's written literally hundreds of roles. Um, and he's got a, an extremely opinionated way of how to define those roles. Um, and he's not wrong in the way that he's done them um, because they work and they're right. Um, but some people don't like the way that he's done them. He will not change his roles to suit To make those amendments. So, for example, I, I suggest, I proposed a change to one of his repositories to do with Nginx, I think it was. And I said, look, you know, if you include these three extra variables, you can then make these changes. And he said, well, yeah, but I don't think those variables need changing. So fair enough. So I then took that module and I forked it and I'm, I'm using it myself for that. So, I I mean, it's a, it's a specific example, but you know, this is, because it's all just text files, it's just version control text files. You can very easily fork stuff and make what you want from that, that text file in the way that you want it. Yeah,
0: To me, that makes perfect sense. I hope it makes just as much sense to everyone else. And bill had to bail, though. I think he reconnected on the mumble server. So, uh, on his phone. So I don't know if he's still here.
1: Yeah, I'm still here.
0: Okay. <laughs> Well, that's all right. Well, I, I don't know if you want to do this, Bill, since you're mobile at this point and you actually have a test to perform, but are, is there anything you wanted to ask, John, before we wrap this up?
1: No, no. I think the uh, the topic was very well covered and, 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 and in a lot of detail, and I was kind of trying to get ahead of everything by looking at the Galaxy site and stuff like that, and I'm really impressed at some of the configurations and stuff that you can actually uh, already download that the community has already put together.
0: All right. Very good. And I, I'm going to do that too. I actually have the Galaxy website up on another computer across the room here that I'm going to check out as soon as we get done here. But I think we're, we'll are we try not to uh, have anyone glaze over any more than they already have because this, <laughs> this has been a rather uh, thorough discussion of Ansible, I believe. And obviously it's going to take people who want to use it a little time to explore the various uh, modules and roles and things that are available through Galaxy and built into Ansible and... Uh, maybe some, uh, simple tutorials to go through, uh, the language that it's written in and, and the operational, uh, you know, the way it functions.
3: Sure. Um,
0: but I think for the most part, this gives a really good overview and actually some of the more technical details of Ansible. Um, again, I, th- this is something I would love to implement in my own environment, but it, it would literally probably take more time to, to reconfigure everything to use um, a you know uh, an integration system like this, than to just kind of do it the way I've been doing it.
2: But I mean, it's sure. still something I'm going to continue to explore. So one of the things that I've I've found around sort of doing that sort of thing is is pick small pieces because ultimately if you've got if you've got a shell script that that you run once and you t- touches every single box on your estate, you're not going to want to go and touch that. Not anytime soon, especially like if you're just learning your way around Ansible. But if you've got like an individual task, so say for example, uh, uh, if you want to configure like a specific port on a specific switch, um, you can do that relatively easily in Ansible. So you could try doing individual small tasks and see how well they go. Because what you could do is you could build running that action into some of your shell scripts. So you could say, um, you know, if you're configuring that per switch, um, Ansible hyphen playbook space such and such command, such and such an inventory and make that part of your shell script. Um, So that's one thing you could do. Um, But yeah, I mean, you're right. Uh, Ultimately, these tools are there to help your systems administrators. If it's going to make more work for your system administrator, then don't, don't use it. Um, I'd rather see people uh, spend this so effectively administrate systems, administrators are better if they are somewhat lazy in their, in their operations. If they are, if they take, if they see something and they have to run a manual command five times in a month, and that task takes them half an hour each time, why not automate it? So you press one button and walk away from it. If you've got to write, if you've got to run that one task every five years, you're probably not going to automate it. Um, Some some people say, if you've got to run a task more than three times, automate it. That's probably a bit harsh, but certainly if there's things that you can do to automate things, if you've already got stuff that's automating all the stuff, then there's, you're right. There's no point in, in automating it with Ansible. Um, but if there's new stuff that's coming up, absolutely take a look at Ansible.
0: All right. Great. Is there, is there anything we didn't touch on that you, you know, feel like needs
2: to be expressed at this point before we, um, kind of close this one out? There's nothing significant. What I will say though is if anyone in the audience wants to know more about, wants to know more about Ansible, um, I am in your IRC and Discord, so please feel free to come and find me. I'm the nice guy in there. And if you've got any questions you want to ask, if you've got any help that you need with this stuff, I'm more than happy to help you. Um, as I said, I, I am in BST rather than uh oh, sorry, at UTC rather than, uh, you know, EST or PST or any of the six gazillion time zones that you've got over in the States. But, um, you know, if if I'm around, then please feel free to ask for help, and I'm more than happy to help you out
0: all right well fantastic i want to thank you for uh, spending some time with us here and discussing ansible it's a project that's that's really interesting and it has um a lot of power and i know that the way it's structured is designed to be really easy entry um using essentially uh human readable code uh to do all the functions so um and I know it's taking off in respect to some of the other players in this field um uh, because of that and because it's agentless uh it seems to be um gaining a lot of traction. I know it's been gaining traction for some time, but I know it's uh gaining even more traction now. So, um with that, I think we're going to have to wrap this one up. We probably should let you go cuz you are way ahead of us. I mean, we are recording this a little early, but it's still getting late for you. Um but thanks once again, John, for being here. Uh, your call sign again is G7VRI. Uh, he's also on the Admin Admin podcast, so remember to check that out. And he already gave you the invitation to uh, hit him up for, for help about Ansible, and I think
2: anyone who wants to get into this project should definitely do that. So thank you very much for being here. No worries at all. It was a pleasure to be here, and I'm glad to, uh, glad to finally part of, be part of uh, Linux in the Hamshack.
0: Well, we're certainly glad to have you. So anything you want to wrap up with, Bill? Are you still there? Are you struggling with a cello? Are you struggling with a cello? Uh, (laughs) Not
1: yet. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah, thanks thanks again, John. And uh, uh, definitely uh, very informative uh, information for those that want to get into doing these uh, automated orchestration tasks.
0: All right. Very good. Well, with that, um, we will take a minute to let John uh, either hang out if he wants to or not. But in the meantime, we're going to get ready. We're going to bring Cheryl in here, and we're going to do some feedback to finish out the episode and here is cheryl now welcome to the program
3: hi
0: (laughs) well it turns out we don't actually have a lot in the way of feedback and announcements in fact we don't have any feedback at all because because these episodes were recorded sort of semi out of order um, we already addressed all the feedback we have for for this week so We'll just have to do the one announcement we have. So, Charles, since you were were kind enough to stand by and uh, let John ramble on about Ansible, I guess you can take care of this.
3: All righty then. Yeah, so um, our our announcement this week is sad. Um, Hutch, uh, also known as Carter Hutchinson, K9KJN, who is the owner of Zydecos 5 that we stop at in Mooresville, Indiana, when we uh, head to Hamvention every year. Uh, and he has been on the podcast several times during roundtable and interviews and things like that. Uh, he contacted me a couple of weeks ago, and I've I've been you know sadly busy and forgot to mention this. Um, but his dad uh, Leonard K A or yeah excuse me K A five W R I is now a silent key. Uh, Hutch, as I said, K9KJN and his brother David N5XL wanted to let us know, and we wanted to send our condolences out to them at this time.
0: Yeah, very much. Very sad. Sorry to hear about that, Hutch. Um, but did want it to be announced, and I we have done that, and, and Bill is
1: like. Yeah, he's stuff, madly he's
3: typing stuff. In yeah, because I, I and I I read this email last night, too, and I completely <laughs> forgot about it. So, yeah, I
1: figured I'd throw one in there. I just saw that. I just like I know we got an email. I just uh, I didn't look at it that well.
3: <laughs> and, well, I think did we not mention I think we mentioned this for Thursday's episode. In fact, I know we did. Did we? Yeah.
0: We mentioned this for Thursday's episode. Yeah,
3: because oh, it's yeah. from Rob. It's yeah, special yeah. event station. Right, right. right. But yeah. we can mention it again.
1: Yeah, we certainly can. So, so. might as
3: well. Right. This will okay.
1: be timely enough. Well, yeah. All right.
0: Well go for it. All since right. you oh. since you wanted to screw us all up with putting stuff in the etherpad. <laughs> I love
1: doing that while people are reading it. Yeah. It's, like, wow. it's always okay. so much. Yeah, fun. I,
3: I get like see stuff moving. I was like, all right, who's typing? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> 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 so this came in uh, this came in via
1: email from Rob, K A two P B T. And he says on Sunday, October 13th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, that's 1400 uh, to 2100 Zulu, 721 MCB will operate the special event station at the National Museum of Industrial History. The NMIH is located on Steel Stacks campus on the former Bethlehem Steel Site. The museum houses over 200 artifacts from across the world. Uh, telling the tale of America's industrial might and the evolution of industry uh, over time, the year from February. Uh, okay, I'm reading it right. Yeah, the year from February until November third, uh, the museum has been running a special exhibit. Don't touch that dial. Oh yeah, we did a, the. Don't touch that dial. I remember. That. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> hundred years of radios and radio components, including rare pieces from the Bethlehem Radio Corporation, Ephemera, 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 Ephemera ephemera yeah ephemera sorry <laughs> <laughs> i'm reading through my uh, my uh, mic stands because i'm standing up and my butt was hurting <laughs> so for listening to the podcast uh <laughs> from the now defunct wkap a one-of-a-kind artifacts from bell labs and more the exhibit also includes a full working amateur radio station we will operate the station as n3i during the event uh, our event happens to coincide with the pennsylvania cuso party so there should be plenty of on-air activity. More info over on the W2FD.com uh, stroke N3I.
3: WC2FD.com. Again, oh, WC2. Sorry. Yeah.
1: <laughs> all right. Very good. Well, thanks. I for, can't read. Right. Thanks for yeah. butchering that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. Uh, one more plug for the Pennsylvania QCSA party. So get on there. Get yeah, on there. get on there. Yeah. So... Work, work PA, EPA, and WPA, and all them PAs.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, with that, once again, we want to send our condolences out to Hutch and, uh, um, you know, just mention again that, uh, KA5WRI was silent key a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, with that, I think we've rambled on more than long enough about ansible so this this is going to be kind of a long one so if you made it this far thank you very much
3: (laughs) you Um, you can unbuckle your seatbelt now because we're done (laughs) yeah it's all
0: over about the shouting so with that i guess we're going to wrap this one up this has been episode number 307 of linux in the ham shack my name
1: is russ i'm k5 tux
3: i'm cheryl w5 O O.
1: and i'm bill ne4rd 73